They say women are the masters of manipulation. But in my experience, it's the men you really have to look out for. He was a caring husband, a born-again believer. The package he presented was so pristine. Jennifer Reale is no fool. Yet after meeting Brian Hood, she became a murderer. She turns and she looks at me, and that's when I shoot. What makes a woman kill for a man? I'm Candace DeLong, retired FBI agent and former psychiatric nurse and host of Facing Evil on Investigation Discovery. I've seen bad things and met bad people. My job means I've sat across the table from killers more times than I care to remember and looked them in the eye. Do I see evil? Sometimes. More often, I see people. People who make the worst possible choice. Is Jennifer Reale evil? You decide. A Wednesday evening in September 1990 in Colorado Springs. Jennifer Reale is a 27-year-old attractive mom with two very young children. She's been raised by supportive parents in a good home. Yet here she is, standing in the shadows, dressed in army fatigues, holding a gun. She's waiting for Diane Hood to walk over. And when she does, Jennifer shoots her once in the shoulder, kneels down to her level, and shoots her again, stone cold dead. Later, Jennifer tells police something incredible. She thought she was doing the right thing. In my previous lines of work, in the FBI and as a nurse dealing with the mentally ill, I've heard many excuses and justifications for bad behavior. But Jennifer's story is one of the most intriguing. Not the least because at first glance, she seems so normal, like someone you might want to spend time with. Jennifer was in her late 40s when I interviewed her and had spent 20 years in prison. She had kept her good looks. I can imagine she was quite the catch back in 1990 when her life had so much promise before it went so horribly wrong. I'm wondering, how did you end up here? How did this become your life? Let's go way back. You know, that's been the puzzle. What, what were the dynamics of my life that caused me to be susceptible to that? What kind of guys were you attracted to? Oh, bad boys. boys. The bad boys. Bad boys. Jennifer falls in love with a soldier, Ben Reale. He brings excitement into her life. Ben is the one you chose to marry. Yeah. How old were you? I was 22. 
I had a great um, career ahead of me. I had all these great things going on. And, and what was what career did you? I have was ahead going of you? into architecture. I was following my father's footsteps. And then he was like, "Well, let's get married." And I'm like, "Well, I want to finish school." He says, "It's now or never." Today, many 21-year-olds would not be thinking about marriage. Nowadays, people settle down later in life. That was clearly on Jennifer's mind too, but nevertheless, she says yes to Ben and gives up on her own career. She wouldn't be the first young woman to be swept up in the romance of marriage. And for some women, it can be a validation to her peers and to herself. It could also mean that Jennifer puts her man's happiness ahead of her own. Back then, I felt like I could not exist without someone. I had to have somebody. I would have someone to love, I would have someone to please, I would have someone to chase, and I'd have someone chasing me, and all of that would make me feel more alive. How did things go with Ben once you were married? They were great before we were married, and once we got married, they were okay. They weren't fabulous. It wasn't what I'd hoped. He became very caustic, he became very controlling, and what I wore was his desire, not mine. What I looked like, how I spoke, I couldn't have the house clean enough. Physically, I weighed maybe 120, a little less, and he mm -hmm. thought I was fat. Some women would tell their man just where to get off if this happened to them. But not Jennifer. She wants only to please, and that drives her behavior. We all want to be accepted, and when someone is being critical, we often blame ourselves, not the critic. This lack of self-confidence leads to more insecurity, and that erodes confidence even more. It's a downward spiral. Despite being a good mom and raising two children, I think Jennifer descended into a vulnerable state. Then along comes her white knight. The first time I met Brian was in the jacuzzi. He uncurled his huge body and shook my hand and said, hi, my name is Brian Hood. And, and I said, hi, I'm Jennifer Rialli. And um, he's like, what do you do for a living? And I, very chagrined, in a sense, said, well, I'm a housewife and a mother. And I wasn't real proud of that because I had aspirations to be something else. And he very quickly said, oh, that's one of the best professions in the world. I think that's admirable. You should think well of yourself. Brian is married with three children. He says he loves his wife, but she has a severe illness, lupus. It's a chronic and sometimes fatal degenerative disease affecting the whole body. At the time, treatment options were limited. How did he come across when he would speak about his wife's illness? Very sympathetic. He seemed as though it was such a tragedy. He came across as a caring husband. Oh, very, very. It became more than a friendship. Yes. When he finally introduced the idea of an affair and I told him, no, that's not possible, I'm not gonna do that and I can't believe you're thinking about it. And he acquiesced and it was okay, we were gonna be friends. And there it should have ended. But three things ensure this relationship is going to happen. 
first, Jennifer is very unhappily married. Second, she has a strong need to please people. And third, Brian has a hidden agenda. He's a life insurance salesman and arranges to come over to Jennifer's place to talk about policies for her and her husband. Brian times it perfectly. Jennifer's husband is away on military maneuvers. I was pouring coffee and he came up behind me and um, I turned around, I didn't even know he was there. And he just bent down and kissed me. And I pushed him away and I said, how can you do this? We're not doing this. And he says, well, you just take your head off and you put it over there and you just enjoy it. It's as though he knew exactly what to do, exactly when, it's like he could read what I needed. It was the dream. It was. We finally stopped all that and he had a meeting he had to go to and he says, oh, but my shirt's all wrinkled. And I said, back into wife mode. I said, well, the ironing board's right here. I'll just iron it, give me your shirt. So I'm in the laundry room and he just picks me up, puts me on the washing machine and washer and dryer and basically starts to have sex. And I'm thinking, okay, this is not okay. This is not all right, but this is great. This is great. Then very abruptly, he got out and he said, okay, now we're one in the eyes of God. He put his shirt on, walked out and he was gone. And I'm still sitting there on the washer and dryer. When a man walks straight away after sex, it usually gives a girl pause, but not Jennifer. She simply sees someone who wants her for who she is, just the way she is. I felt beautiful, I felt affirmed, I felt loved. I didn't feel like I was being used. I didn't feel like trash. So that was how the affair began. During their secret rendezvous, Brian starts opening up more about his wife and her illness. It's the classic move of a psychopath. They know where the buttons are and when to push them. Brian would have already identified Jennifer's weakness, a willingness to please, and he headed straight for his target. First, he started talking about how miserable he was and that, you know, the disease was potentially deadly and that he wished he just, she'd just die and that it was getting worse and worse. And he started talking about how he wanted to kill her. What did you think of this? I thought he was really distraught. I mean, I, I felt his pain and I wanted him just to be able to vent. I figured if he vented, then it was going to be okay. I said, why don't you just divorce her? And he says, well, I can't. Because if I divorce her, then I will perpetually live in sin for the rest of my life. Because you'll be in adultery. Divorce is, mm -hmm. is a no-no in the church. You just can't do that. But murder's okay? I asked him that, and I thought that that was a little, little odd there. I said, well, he says, because murder's a one-time thing, and you do that once, and then you can, you know, you can confess it, you get forgiven, and there may be consequences throughout life. But really, you're done. You, you know, it's not going to be a perpetual sin till the day you die. That was his rationale that he couldn't divorce her, they were both believers. To you and me, this logic sounds crazy. But if you are someone like Jennifer, someone who can see a bright light on the horizon of happiness just out of reach, someone who believes Diane has a terminal illness and it's just a matter of time before she dies anyway, 
and her husband seems so compassionate about it all, as if it's almost for Diane's sake? If you're that person, and you've been over backwards to please your husband for the past seven years, whatever he asks, you might just do it. Or not. How did it come up that you would kill her? He had come to the conclusion that I was an angel sent by God and that I was here to help him through this and that I would um, be the one to be able to do this. And I thought he was crazy. Did you have any thoughts about what would happen if you simply said, Brian, I'm not going to kill your wife? I did tell him that. And we had that conversation and it didn't go well. We were in my car. I told him, I said, look, I can't do this. So you're gonna have to find another way. And I remember him slamming the dashboard and he started yelling at me a blue streak and I don't really recall what he said. But then it was just like, okay, okay, okay. Do you recall the point, Jennifer, at which you decided to do it, to commit the murder? Here's the crazy thing. I don't know that I can say that I decided I would. What I decided is that if it was gonna happen, it was gonna happen. And I thought that God would stop it. If it wasn't supposed to happen, my car would break down or the meeting would be canceled or something would happen. And so to say that I made a decision would be a lie. Jennifer outsources her conscience. It's a surprisingly common survival strategy. She doesn't have to take responsibility for her actions if she believes God is playing backstop. How can a mere mortal be blamed if it's in God's great plan? Just after 8.30 p.m. on that fateful night, Jennifer, wearing army fatigues, stands in the shadows outside a lupus support meeting where Diane is attending. Jennifer wants to make the killing look like an armed robbery gone wrong. Do you remember how you were feeling? Was your heart pounding? I went numb. I felt weightless. I got to a place where it just didn't even feel like I existed. I didn't feel anything. I wait for the meeting to come out and she and somebody else come out. I don't even see the other person. And I tell her to give me her purse and she does and she runs. And she's halfway between me and the entrance. And that's when I shoot. That shot, I, of course, learned later, went straight through her and killed her because it went through her right arm, through her heart, and lodged in her left arm. So I walked over to her, and I recall her rolling over um, onto her stomach, and that's where the second shot is in her shoulder. And then I ran. Jennifer may sound a little matter-of-fact here, but she seems genuinely distressed. She's putting on a brave face. I believe that back then, Jennifer was so in love with Brian, she believed anything he told her. Little did she know, Diane was nowhere near as sick as her husband described. She had only a mild form of lupus. It wasn't even life-threatening. 30 minutes after the shooting, Detective Joe Kenda is on the case. Yes, that Joe Kenda. 
Joe quickly figures out Diane is not a random victim of armed robbery. The bullets are unusual. They come from a very rare antique gun. With good detective work, Kenda traces that gun to Ben Reale. Ben tells him that only the day before, his wife brought a gun into his office and asked him to keep it. Jennifer is in handcuffs by the end of the day and confesses to the killing, but claims Brian convinced her God wanted it that way. Detective Joe Kenda gets his convictions. Brian Hood is sentenced to 37 years, and Jennifer receives 63 years. Have you taken responsibility for this? I've always taken the brunt of the responsibility, maybe more than I should have, because really, I'm the gun in Brian's hand. I'm not the one that pulled the trigger. He's the one who did. He killed his wife. If you could say anything to Diane, what would you say? I'm sorry. That, that's such a shallow thing to say. That doesn't cut it. She should be bouncing grandbabies on, on her lap. She shouldn't be where she is. I'd trade places with her if I could, because she's the one who needs to be living. This tragedy might be easier to understand if Jennifer simply killed out of jealousy. That's the most common motivator for one woman to kill another. It might be easier to say Jennifer simply fell under the spell of a psychopath and was brainwashed into murder. But that's not the whole story either. In my view, it was Jennifer's sense of self that was the real problem. She lacked the confidence to stand up for what is right. She knew the whole thing was wrong, but she wanted to please Brian. She put her man first. That's why we should raise our children to believe in themselves, not to become arrogant brats, but to create a strong foundation that they have a place in the world, a place that does not depend on the admiration of others. If Jennifer had truly believed in herself back then, she would have just said no. If you were out of prison, would society be safe from you? Oh, yes. I'm no longer a threat because who I was when I came here is not the person I am today. If I had known how to have loving relationships and had believed in myself, Brian Hood couldn't have touched me. Neither could have been Rianne. Neither of those men could have touched me. I would have been an architect, somewhere having a successful life, somewhere with probably a great husband and kids that are in college, you know? So I see where I could have gone, but I know that now my desire is to give back to the society that I took from. There are women all over that are in similar positions. Next on Facing Evil. How many times did you stab her? About 39. The most honest interview I've ever had with a killer. There's nothing to blame. There's no drugs. 
There's no alcohol. There's nothing to blame for but me. Your temper. My temper, my ego. That's next on Facing Evil. For Beyond Productions, the producers are Sue McGregor and Jeff Fitzpatrick. For Investigation Discovery, the producers are Pamela Deutsch and Sarah Kozak. Kevin Bennett is the general manager, and Henry Schleif is the network president. I'm Candace DeLong.